Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. Shine on lightning The days are long And the nights are frightening Nothing matters anyway And that's the hell of it Winter comes and the winds blow colder Well, some go wiser You just grew older You never listened anyway And that's the hell of it Good for nothing Bad in bed Nobody likes you and you're better off dead Goodbye, goodbye We've all come to say goodbye, 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 goodbye Born defeated, died in vain Super destructive, you were hooked on pain And though your music lingers on All of us are glad you're gone If I could live my life half as worthlessly as you I'm convinced that I'd wind up burning too What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 498, podcast for hardcore cinephiles. We tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're going to be talking about Faustian bargains, deals with the devil, basically music, Satan, rock and roll, drugs, sex, death, horror, all kinds of lovely topics. And now in his maybe fourth appearance, Victor Rodriguez is returning, who's going to bring his singular expertise when it comes to the music biz and his love of horror. But Victor, welcome back to Wrong Real. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks so much for having me back. It's, it's always great to be here. Well, we were just talking kind of casually before we started recording, and I was asking you about uh, how you seem to really enjoy podcasting so much, and I was uh, suggesting you might possibly start one of your own, and then it sounds like you've actually got some some information on the front, so lay it on me. Uh, yeah, well, um, yeah, it's interesting you should bring that up because, um, yeah, there's a, um, a friend of mine, Josh Ellis, who's a very talented audio engineer um, who's uh, here in the Pacific Northwest with me, and uh, we've been recording passages from my um, short story collection, The Sound of Fear, um, and we thought, well, this thing's called The Sound of Fear, why not make an audio version of it? So <laughs> makes sense. Are y'all going to do like music or sound effects or anything like that? Or yeah, there's going to be a bit of that. Um, you know, uh, it's been a, a tremendous learning experience for me and Josh. But um, I wouldn't have had the balls to try this without having learned from the best on your oh, podcast. Nice. Excellent. So, well, remember when I we did our it. our Lovecraft episode. I used a sample. You sent me a little like audio sample just to make sure that you were like your, everything was recording okay on your end, and you read like the opening passage of Call of Cthulhu and I was like god damn like he's got a scary fucking voice like he's pretty <laughs> pretty good at this <laughs> so I'm thrilled to hear that you're going to be lending your talents to your material in such a fashion thanks thanks I'll be uh, I'll be trying my best so yeah that should be online sometime this summer nice and you mentioned before we started recording as well that you are collaborating on an anthology that might be doing a Kickstarter campaign in April. Obviously, we'll just uh, we'll we'll include the link once the link goes live. But what can you tell us about this latest project? Yeah, that would be great, man. Uh, yeah, it's called On Time, and um, yeah, uh, me and Alicia Costanzo and Raymond Daly and a, a couple of a dozen other writers have gotten together, and we're. Uh, 
We're starting a Kickstarter on April 25th. Um, so yeah, the anthology is called On Time. It's a speculative fiction about time and the perception of time and, uh, you know, so, so science fiction, horror, fantasy type stuff. Uh, and it's coming from Transmundane Press if we get the appropriate funding, which I'm pretty sure we will. Excellent. Now, what does it mean? I hear this expression a lot these days, and I think it, I think it's largely spread around by people who don't know what they're talking about, but they say time is a flat circle. And obviously, time is something we've basically invented to prevent ourselves from going insane because we can't really like anticipate or understand everything happening all at once. So just a way of kind of organizing our lives and our schedules. But what do you, how do you interpret that phrase when people are talking about shows like True Detective, like time is a flat circle? Yeah, you know, uh, I can't believe you brought that up because I used that exact line when I pitched the story <laughs> that is going to appear nice. in this anthology. Um, it, it could mean a lot of things, but um, in my uh, the the story that I wrote for the anthology, which is um, is called uh, a discourse on philosophy between a man and an unexploded atomic bomb, um, I think it has to do with the way we perceive time going through our day to day activities versus the way time actually is. Um, so, according to Rust Cole on True Detective. We've already done all this. Like, you know, we are somehow, uh, philosophically speaking, um, a reflection of our own past or our own future. And it's really just our perception of things that makes it seem like we're living day to day in a fresh perspective. Um, but anyway, I believe it or not, I, I try to tackle that topic with my story. Very so nice. Well, I remember deep. one of the things that blew my mind about time when I was in high school, I was taking a physics, phys can you say the word, physics course, and my teacher was a giant Star Trek geek, and we'd spent every basically we'd do everything in our power to try to get him talking about next generation as opposed to whatever we were supposed to be studying or learning but he was talking about this idea of like relativity and at one point how if you if you could somehow manage to create an experiment where one person is stationary and another person is traveling by at the speed of light that mm. both people would perceive the other person to i believe we would perceive them not to be aging and that they would both be right at the same time. That from their point of view, they're basically slowing down time and perception. And I was like, whoa, okay. So maybe just this idea of like time as like a fixed thing is something we've just kind of invented. And once again, relativity is also something we've kind of invented. So where, where do you stand on these, <laughs> uh, these paradoxes when it comes to perceptions of time? Uh, yeah, James, all I can say is, uh, you know, not being a student of, um, you know, uh, subatomic physics or any of those, you know, extremely advanced areas of science uh, where, where science and philosophy kind of meld together, um, I can just say that it's not hard for me to believe that uh, we don't know everything we think we know, that, that somebody sometime is going to prove, like Einstein did, that there's more to reality than we realize. I wish I could remember who it was. There's some historical figure, some like some s alleged scientist from like 1850 or so, and he was like, you know what? We have discovered all there is to be discovered about the natural world. Like science is done, and, <laughs> and I feel like it's, it's always dangerous to have a certain level of hubris. But I feel like Interstellar did a pretty cool job of showing how gravity can have an impact on time, like where you see that they're down on this planet where it's basically been stripped bare due to its proximity to this, I think it was like this like black dwarf star or whatever you want to call it. But the yeah. person who's up in the, like their little ship, who's not on the surface, 
he's aging all the time while they're yeah. down there basically and time seems to be frozen and when they go back up there he's old as hell and he's like look I know I should have like put myself in suspended animation but I was just kind of like like spending years and years and years doing nothing I wanted to actually like appreciate some of it but I thought that in an entertaining fashion managed to tackle some of those topics yeah yeah that's that's all fascinating stuff to me and and I think that uh, a lot of filmmakers have uh, tried to capture that like in uh, films that feature like a character that is like in his last moments of life and his life is sort of flashing before his eyes, but you don't really know that till the end of the movie, um, uh, stuff like that, like the, like the way time bridge and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a, that's a cool topic. It's a lot easier done in fiction than it is uh, on film. It's, it could be tricky to do on film, but when it's done well, it's, I appreciate it. Well, maybe as a way of unlocking this topic today, let's start a little in case somebody has not heard your previous appearances where you're talking about berserk, and Lovecraft and was there what was the other one we did I can't remember I, I think those were the two yeah. oh those are the only two okay gotcha yeah. so uh, we have, but if people have not heard your previous appearances talk a little bit about uh, the start of your career because I feel like it's kind of you are playing in the same world that we'll explore a little bit in the context of at least two of these movies so talk about your career in film and in music and then we can start slipping into the, the films that you've selected to discuss today uh, yeah cool um well, I, uh, I I grew up uh, fascinated with music. You know, my my parents played a lot of classical music in the house, and um, I grew up. You know, when I uh, became a teenager, I started uh, finding my own music. You know, kind of new wave and punk. And um, when I went to college, I majored in music for about <laughs> one semester. Very nice. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, that's when I encountered people that were really good, really good players. Um, and, you know, I was practicing my ass off, you know, learning piano and guitar. Uh, but, you know, people were running laps around me. And it, it occurred to me at that point that, hey, maybe I'm not a natural talent as a, as a musician. You know, maybe I should be the type of guy who helps musicians. And it was at that moment that I was like, yeah, maybe I'll be, uh, you know, an agent or a manager or something like that. And sure enough, when I was out of school, I fell ass backwards into a job doing music and business, uh, music business and legal affairs for New World Pictures, uh, Roger Corman's company. So that uh, I'm, I'm proud of saying that everything I learned, uh, everything I learned that was valuable in the business, I learned at that job. Like I, I did, that was my first composer agreement, music licensing, everything I learned there. And um yeah, I've just been ex sort of specializing in different areas of music business affairs since then. And uh, eventually, when I uh, moved up to the Pacific Northwest, uh, started becoming the caretaker of the strange high house in the mist here, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a great excuse to uh, to start writing. So um, now I write about those things uh, in a fictional uh, framework. Now, obviously, as someone who's never worked in the music industry in any way, shape, or form, I'm always fascinated by the stories of like, you know, sixties and seventies with like, you know, the, the people shooting heroin on their eyeballs and throwing dead bodies out windows of hotels and just acting like total complete <laughs> maniacs and, you know, force feeding musicians pills to keep them going and all that kind of stuff. Did any of that inform your work on Hellraiser two, where you got to work on the, uh, the soundtrack to that film? Yeah, no, um, no, everything, uh, everything that at that company, uh, was pretty, pretty up and up. Although I did have a chance to meet with some 
gangster slash musicians later in my career when I uh, went to work for um, uh, music labels and, and music publishers. Um, that was a bit more of a Wild West type world. But um, by the time I was at New World Pictures, it was pretty buttoned up. And, um, you think, know, Roger uh, Corman, like you look at him, he's he's like he's just this old guy in a sweater and he couldn't be more polite and more genteel. And then you look at the films he made, like in, especially in the 50s, 60s and 70s, it's like you made hundreds and hundreds of sex flicks and monster flicks. And sometimes like, you know, the we're, we're in like the, the Venn diagram and the overlap in, in between the two. And but he's such an unassuming, just polite, kind of wholesome guy. <laughs> I know, I know. I think it's just market opportunity. I think he he saw, uh, yeah, the the Venn diagram of of like, um, you know, redistributing foreign films and uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah, like Bergman uh, ex- and Kurosawa. He had like really highbrow yeah. taste when it came to redistributing foreign films in America, but when it came to the films he was producing, he was like, all right, well, let's just get like a, a paper mache monster and a couple two by fours and a couple hot girls and see what see what happens. And like, you know, if we're gonna build a castle for one movie, well, let's use it for ten movies, and we'll just use the same footage over and over and over again. We'll just have like a castle burning down at the end of all these films, and like, he knew he knew every single shortcut there was. Yeah, no, in in the company we call it the uh, the shotgun effect which is you know just try uh just invest in a bunch of uh, auteurs for a bunch of low budget projects and hope one of them hits to to carry the rest forward yeah. it's like the pharmaceutical model you develop like a hundred different random pills and hoping one of them is going to be viagra and cover all your other losses <laughs> yes indeed yeah very similar when was the last time you were afraid really afraid Mephisto waltz, the devil dancing with his paramours. I'd love to do a life mask of Miles. I'm not my husband's keeper. The Mephisto Waltz, a story of inner fear and ritual terror, and the ultimate transplant, the human soul. Goodbye, Miles. Mommy? He said he had to kill her. Some kind of bargain. Oh. Duncan Eli. And now Duncan's dead. But you play like him. How did his brain get into your fingers? Paula, you're living in a nightmare. People who pray to the devil. Paula. Is it possible? Who are these people of the occult? What is their incredible power over others? How long does it take them to drive a woman out of her mind? The terrifying answers come each time you hear the Mephisto Waltz, the sound of terror. You killed Bill. You killed Abby. Now you want to kill me. But you play like it. How did his brain get into your fingers? You're living in a nightmare. People who pray to the devil. Is it possible? It is possible. 
Well, let's start slipping into some of these flicks. The, the first movie you picked for us today, I had never seen, never even heard of, but it comes from my favorite year of filmic in 1971. And in 1970... Fox was really struggling financially from the, a lot of costly failures in the 60s. And this is the one movie that Fox put into production in 1970, which is incredible that this legendary studio, which now no longer exists, that they would only make one movie. And it just shows how, at the end of the 60s, how the, the studio system was dying and or reinventing itself and repositioning itself for the future. But clearly inspired by the success over at Paramount with Rosemary's Baby, we have the Mephisto Waltz. So yes, lay yes. it on us. What, what, what is this flick? Yeah. Um, so yeah, the Mephisto Waltz. Uh, it, it it is an actual piece by Franz Liszt, um, a, a, a composer. Um, I think that an important composer for this piece because Liszt was so much of a rock star when he was around that um, he used to enchant the uh, the the women, and I'm, I'm sure some of the men at his performances. Uh, and um, he started to get blamed by uh, a lot of the jealous men that were <laughs> that were in the audience that he was somehow in league with the devil because he played so fucking well. Um, and uh, it, it was a studious thing. It was a thing that, that uh, List cultivated. And I think it is around that conceit uh, that they built this, uh, well, the novel by, uh, uh, you know, uh, Fred Mustard Stewart and then um, the movie, Subsequently, um, it's it's a like Rosemary's Baby, like you said, it's a classy um, pulp story um, uh, that has a lot to do with uh, ritual magic and Satanism and um, at least a cinematic Satanism, I should say. Uh, and uh, the um, I guess the central through line in this, the supernatural through line is it's a body swap story. So um, using magic, uh, a aging and uh, dying pianist uh, uses his um, satanic uh, know-how to swap bodies with a sort of has-been talented uh, pianist, a uh, younger pianist who um, is now uh, sort of a guy who writes about music. Yeah, and he's got the famous Rachmaninoff hands. One of the few things I know about Rachmaninoff is that he had these really wide, long fingers, which allowed him to play things that most conventional pianists can't play. And so it makes his his pieces notoriously difficult for people with regular sized hands. But this uh, this guy who's the villain from Spy Who Loved Me, he notices <laughs> that Alan Alda, of all people, like the nicest, like unassuming guy. Like I mean. I, I adore Alan Alda, even when he plays kind of more savage characters like in um, like Crimes and Misdemeanors or like Horse and Pete, the, the Louis C.K. show. But he, he's impossible not to like. But yeah, that's what the first thing you notice is he's got those really wide fingers. But quick question about Litz or Litz. I never quite know how to say it. Did you ever Litz. see the Ken Russell film Litzdomania from 1975? It's been on my to-do list for forever, but I've never seen it. Mine too. Um, I have not seen it, and I think uh, that that that's something that we should probably seek out because um, it sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, they obviously it's got Roger Daltrey in it, and they'd obviously made Tommy together. But this, I feel like that's definitely Ken Russell's wheelhouse. Whether you're talking about the music lovers or Savage Messiah, but he's really good at dealing with wild, unconventional, kind of unrestrained, hedonistic, satanistic, hypersexualized musicians and that sort of thing. So yeah, that that one is. Uh, and also, it comes from his great period. I feel like Ken Russell from late 60s to early 80s was really 
I mean, you can make a case from sustaining that up through the late 80s, but I feel like the, the, the sweet spot was late 60s to early 80s, and this falls right smack dab in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, just a, a, a note about, um, yeah, Rachmaninoff's hands were were incredibly, uh, his reach was incredibly large, which enabled him to, like, attack the, the keys um, with uh, a lot of pressure on the on the ends of his of his reach. But uh, List did not have particularly big hands, I understand, but... He lacked uh, well, you the webbing. You know what webbing. they say about people with small hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and well, in this case, they make great piano players. Exactly. But, um, uh, yeah, apparently he was lacking. Uh, this is what I read. Uh, you know, um, he was lacking the webbing that most of us have between our fingers, so he could also do a tremendously spread of interesting. Exactly. That yeah. Must have been so bizarre looking. I wonder if you, like, uh, yeah, you could like surgically remove the webbing. It might like hurt your swimming career, but might improve your piano career. <laughs> But it's kind of weird that uh, that Kurt Kurt Jurgens, who who plays the um, you know the the satanic older guy in this movie, um, when he was playing the villain in Spy Who Loved Me, had large webbing in between his fingers. It's, it's kind of a it's a subtle detail, but um, in this one shot, like you can kind of notice that he's got webbed hands, and this is I guess why he's like creating this undersea. <laughs> Well, quick question, just uh, this theoretical question. It seems like satanic horror used to be such a bigger deal in the late 60s and early 70s. And my kind of partial half-formed theories that because religion is less a central facet of American life these days, that people are just less preoccupied with horror that is based like on a fundamentally kind of like a Christian foundation, whether you're talking about the omen or whatever the case might be. But it seems like it was hard not to find horror not rooted in some sort of traditional God, Jesus, Satan dynamic, but now they seem increasingly rare. Do you have any theories on, on that front? Yeah, uh, the Satanic Panic. Um, there's um, uh, there's a book out there. I forget the author's name right now, but um, it's called "Here's to My Sweet Satan," and um, it goes. It's a nonfiction book that goes in detail about how Rosemary's Baby, the novel, uh, touched off this zeitgeist in America uh, of obsession with Satan that, um, you know, religious, like the, the religious uh, side was pretty convinced that a lot of America was secretly into Satan and, and performing rituals. And uh, it gave rise to a lot of celebrities that were dabbling in it for fun. And, um, and of course, the rise of the uh, satanic church, um, you know, Anton LaVey and, and those guys in San Francisco. Uh, and it, it was also a sort of a renaissance of uh, a lot of the work that Aleister Crowley did in the 1800s and, and uh, stuff like that. So, yeah, it was Rosemary's Baby that really touched it off. The The novel was tremendously popular and the movie was tremendously popular after that. And everybody wanted to make a movie about Satan because that's what people wanted to go see. They were fascinated with it. I guess I caught probably the tail end of some of the obsession with Satan where when I was a, maybe like in sixth grade, like late 80s, we were told that there was, I um, can't remember which Led Zeppelin song it was, but that if you played it backwards, you'd hear like a prayer to Satan and things like that. And so we actually found a way with the, with our boombox to play a tape backwards. And we were like, we were pretending, we were like, oh, I just heard him say Satan, but it was just like, <laughs> just like, just total nonsense. 
But so I guess I got a little bit of that. And of course, people, and when I was a, I was a d- avid D&D player in the early 80s, and people thought that, oh, well, if you play role playing games, that it's like a gateway to demonic worship and that sort of thing. But my understanding of yeah. Satanism for a lot of Satanists is that it has nothing to do with Satan at all. It's basically just living for pleasure, living in the moment. It's like being a hedonist. And I'm like, all right, well, maybe I'm a Satanist and just never knew it because I'd very much, you know, live for pleasure or so on and so forth. That's why I watch so many fucking movies and play so many fucking video games. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the, the the Satanism that's that's sort of uh, discussed in these movies or brought up as a as a, a conceit um, is uh, is not really related to the Church of Satan, which actually exists and um, is sort of a an organization uh, designed to dismantling um, the separation of church and state. Uh, and there's a documentary about that called Here's to My uh, or No No It's called uh, Hail Satan with a question mark at the end of it. Very clever. And, yeah, it's it's uh, it talks about the real the real struggle of the the satanic church and what they what they try to do. But um, yeah, it's basically self empowerment um, uh, type thing. But well, sign me up. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, um, Mephisto Waltz. So the right, it, it's just like you were saying, it was Fox's attempt to get on the Rosemary's Baby bandwagon. And if you compare the two novels, very similar. Um, you know, in that they're sort of classy treatments of, uh, or sort of a, a melding of the the pulp horror elements with um, elements of, uh, you know, classic uh, art, in this case, music. Uh, and um, yeah, it was a cool original idea. Um, the movie, The Mephisto Waltz, doesn't really approach Rosemary's Baby in terms of quality, but it was a it was an attempt by you know basically uh, TV people like you know uh, Quinn Martin and uh, Paul Wenkos. They were mostly from the TV world. Like they were doing uh, TV movies and you know Streets of San Francisco and uh, shows like that, uh, and um, they did their best to uh, class it up. On, on this movie, which has a lot of really cool elements. Like, it's got I, a Jerry I, Goldsmith score to begin with. Like, if you're going to do a movie about satanic music, Jerry Goldsmith, he's uh, one of the greatest composers who ever lived for, who at least worked in the movie industry. So yeah, bring on more Jerry Goldsmith always. Yeah, you know, um, coincidentally, uh, one of the first movies that uh, I tackled at New World Pictures was a movie called Warlock from the late '80s. Oh, I and, remember Warlock. Yeah, <laughs> they made a couple. They made a couple of them. <laughs> yeah, Jerry, um, Jerry did the um, the music for that, and um, I was a huge fan of his. Like, I, I I loved the Omen and Planet of the Apes scores, and uh, Star my Trek boss, motion picture. I mean, he's, yeah, he's got picture. some iconic scores. Yeah, great. Great stuff, uh, and one of the one of the few composers that I think really is great at reinventing himself every time a new score, like if it calls for it to use a completely different palette of instruments, he will do it. Um, but uh, yeah, my boss thought it would be really funny if we delivered the contracts to his house, and uh, she wouldn't tell me like who <laughs> who I was delivering the contracts to. So I just handed him the envelope, and and I was just like, whoa you know, you're Jerry Goldsmith. And she just starts laughing and, uh, you know, and he was like, oh yeah, hi. And I'm like, I'm a huge fan and, you know, all this stuff. So that was one of, one of the many connections, uh, that, uh, that I had at New World to what we're going to talk about today. (laughs) Excellent. Well, for me, the big joyful surprise of this flick was getting Jacqueline Bissett or Bissett, however you prefer to pronounce her name, but having her 
naked performing a satanic ritual with a pentagram. I was like, all right, well, the movie might not be Rosemary's Baby, and very few horror movies are, but at a bare minimum, I get to see Jacqueline doing her thing, and she basically takes, I mean, initially think, oh, Alan Aldi's big star, he's going to be the star of the movie, but it's really it's Jacqueline Bissett's story mm-hmm. as she's trying to figure out what has happened to her fella and how she can kind of twist it and turn it to her advantage at the end and get some revenge. And I guess my, my favorite bits would probably be some of the wild hedonistic parties that they attend where you've got like a dog walking around with like the William Shatner mask that would be used years <laughs> later in Halloween. <laughs> You're like, what the fuck is going on? You see, like there's maniacs and people are dancing, necking and doing uh, classical music duets and so on and so forth. I was like, you know, that's, those are actually the kind of parties that I would want to attend where you get a mix of like, High art and low art or like, you know, sophistication and living for pleasure all kind of stirred into this really intense brew. And I thought those were some of the most intense scenes. And also some of the dream sequences I thought were particularly effective. But yeah, having, I mean, this is Jacqueline Bissett, 1971. This is when she's in her absolute physical prime. And so I I was uh, thrilled to get uh, another 1971 movie under my belt. Because like I said many times before, this is my favorite year of filmmaking. And I'm always discovering new movies that just reinforce and support my already rabid affection for this particular year. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah. It was a fantastic year in, in cinema. I totally, totally agree. But yeah, I think you were talking about the 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 part there's a party there's a masquerade party um that, like these uh, uh the uh, Kurt Jurgens and his wife or daughter like it's kind of uh, unclear at first or maybe um, both yeah or both yeah um they throw <laughs> these uh, these best baby yeah wild wild Hollywood parties and um uh, a lot of people thought that's pretty much what went on at uh, at those parties in the in the 70s. And um, everybody's wearing animal masks except the dog that's wearing a human mask. Like I, lo- <laughs> I just love that idea. Um, it's very cool, and um, yeah, that that it sets, sets it up perfectly. And um, yeah, the like the dream sequences. A lot of times, uh, that's something that uh, filmmakers I think get wrong or weird. But I think that uh, when Coast really nails it in um, in uh, Mephisto Waltz, uh, you know, it it really feels odd, and there's this weird. I don't know too much about, uh, you know, camera lenses, but uh, there's this weird narrow lens that he uses for those sequences. So, you know, that it's not real, but um, is it, you know, because there's a lot of confusion between what's real and what isn't in this movie. And, and I think it's it's handled pretty well. So, well, as I was watching it, I had a, an interesting little flashback from some of my own experiences working in the horror genre. But in 2003, I was one of the producers on a super low budget movie called Dead Doll. And I'll never forget, we, um, well, as I was watching Satanic Walt, uh, Mephisto Waltz, one of the first scenes where you have Alan Alda and Jacqueline Bissett living together when they come outside, I was like, oh my fucking God, that's the location where we shot, like, I think for two days. And the reason I remember the location so vividly, I mean, you have this house that's on a hill up in the Hollywood Hills, and it's kind of remote, and it's not surrounded by any other houses. But the reason I remember so vividly, our first AD, who I will not say by name, threw this epic shit fit for some reason, and he... For whatever reason, he decided this was a bad location in terms of the proximity of the road to our cars and our and like all of our gear. And he thought it was basically dangerous and unsafe to be shooting there. I was like, I mean, admittedly, it's not like ideal, but it's not like we're like shooting in the middle of a fucking highway without stopping traffic. Like, but he throughout the day kept throwing these temper tantrums. Like if he was unfolding like fold out chairs for lunch, he would do it really emphatically with like an angry, surly expression on his face. I was like, dude. 
Like, and he was the oldest person on the crew. I think it's like stop being such a big fucking baby and throwing a temper tantrum. And finally, later on, our line producer said, "Well, he's pissed off because he's the oldest and most experienced person on the crew, but he's not being treated with the reverence that he feels he deserves. So this is just his excuse for having like a pouty kind of bratty session today." But anyway, when I saw that house, I was like, "Oh my god, that's fucking Dead Doll. We shot there 17 years ago." And I'm not even sure if the exterior made it into Dead Doll, but. At any rate, I had a very intense flashback. I mean, Dead Doll's a, a rotten, awful movie, but it was the first time I worked in a producer capacity on a feature film, so I've got some sentimental affection for that period of my life. That's very cool. Well, I, I think just because of our, our history together now, I'm going to have to find that and check that out, um, but uh, I'll, I'll be think, aware of that location. Let's see. I mean, I, I've lost touch with everybody who worked on it. It was self-financed by... Oh my God, I can't even remember the name of the uh, the director now. Adam something or other. Uh, hang on, let's see. Dead Doll. All right, here. So D- all right, the DVD is still available for $34.95. Only one left in stock. And it's available full screen, not widescreen. <laughs> Adam Sherman, that was the director. His family founded Hallmark. He had, all his, he had money to burn. He's done some other movies since then. But wow. So if you want to be the last person on the planet to buy a DVD of Dead Doll through uh, Amazon, it is still available to this day. Get it, and and you know, speaking of, of connections, um, with one of one of the other shows that uh, that you had me uh, as a guest on, um, Bradford Dillman is in uh, Mephisto Waltz, and he plays Pikmin in Pikmin's model. Oh uh, Jesus, very cool! Night Gallery. Yeah, I, I, I totally missed that as I was watching it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, God, that guy looks familiar, and I looked it up, and I was like, Oh, it's Pikmin. Um, but anyway. So how would you rank this as a horror movie? Because I, I would say I enjoyed this, but when you think of early 70s horror, naturally you're going to think of things like Last House on the Left or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You're going to think of some really visceral, ter- it's almost like a weird thing where suddenly when there was the laws of censorship were loosened, all this pent-up desire to put things on the screen. It was like it had been building up behind a dam and it suddenly got unleashed. And it's almost like in the early 70s, we saw images that we'll never see again. Like you just think about, even like mainstream movies like The Devils and uh, fucking like uh, Straw Dogs and Clockwork Orange. But all of a sudden mm-hmm. we just were seeing things that you never could have imagined only a couple of years prior. So how, how do you think this movie compares to some of the other really intense movies going on at that time? Uh, yeah, I don't think it compares to those movies that you just mentioned. Um, like on a scale of one to ten, um, you know, considering like a, a like from today's attention spans and uh, you know looking back uh, at, uh, at at movies that were made in the seventies, um, I'd give this probably a seven out of ten. Uh, I think like a, like an eight out of ten. A couple of years before, like if you're into um, like pulp uh, satanic stuff, there's a movie called The Devil's Ri- uh, The Devil Rides Out. Um, which, you know, has nothing to do with music. So I, you know, I didn't think we should cover it on this show, but uh, it's a fantastic movie about the same types of things, ritual magic and, and stuff. I think they they really nail it. That's, that's like an eight out of 10. Um, this, I think, feels like a TV movie at, at a few points. It's kind of loosely paced. And, um, you know, the editing could have used a little tightening up. The performances are okay, but they're not great, except for maybe Jacqueline Bissett. That's, that's pretty good. Um, uh, it, it it's it feels a little phoned in in every way except the score like i think that the score is fantastic um yeah. and the, so. du- the i think it's a mozart duet they do at the party with two pianos and i was like god damn like this is fucking fantastic <laughs> yeah and it's really cool like if you're thinking of getting into list or um you know piano classical music this is probably a cool movie to watch too because they they really do play some famous pieces 
Uh, now, what are some other famous examples of pop stars or musicians who made a proverbial deal with the devil? Because Robert Johnson, obviously, is the biggest example I can think of. I took a Mississippi uh, literature and music class at UVA, and we would study his songs almost like poetry, but it's all these incredible songs about like hellhounds on his trail. Like you get this sense of like impending doom, and he's always talking about going down to the crossroads. And you're like, God damn, like what what goes down, what goes on down at the crossroads? But what are some other examples that you can think of apart from Litz and Robert Johnson who might have made these compacts with uh, Satan for, uh, for for fame and success? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, Paganini, um, which was a famous violinist, I think in the late 1700s. Um, you're kind of testing my musical history knowledge here, but uh, he he was pretty famous for playing so well that people were like, there's something supernatural about that guy. Like, nobody can play like that. Did and, you ever see List- the Paganini film directed by and starring Klaus Kinski from 1989? I have not. His great passion I- project that he, I think he self-financed it. It is a, an a objectively terrible movie however what the reason he made the movie is because he wanted to basically have one scene after another where his sexual prowess was so overwhelming that women would be reduced to shudders and screams and you know quivering moans and it just been an excuse for klaus kensky to suggest that he's got all these sexual powers but i think it was so exhausting that it basically killed him and he, he didn't live long after <laughs> yeah no i i think right the, the he i mean i think that may have a lot more to do with his fame, like his tremendous fame uh, at the time that I'm sure he was offered like all kinds of booze and drugs. And that's probably what killed him. But yeah, uh, like Mozart. But, yeah. But but in doing research for for Franz Liszt for for this movie, um, I noticed that he patterned his own uh, brand, uh, you know, after Paganini um, because he wanted to be famous. And, you know, he, he I mean, he was a child prodigy. Liszt was a, a child prodigy and he wanted to be like Mr. Uh, satanic majesty on the piano, you know, and um, and he got it like he he got that reputation. But I, th- I think that anytime performers are so good that like guys, girlfriends get um, get into them and spontaneous <laughs> orgasms listening to their music. Yeah, I think that's when the rumors start like, oh, I, I don't know about that guy. I think he might be in league with the devil, you know, <laughs> fair enough. Well, let's switch gears to the next movie on the list, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, and one that I didn't discover until fairly late in life, like at, is post-creation of Wrong Reel, I, I got into this, but we've got Brian De Palma's, some would say, masterpiece, or at least masterful, Phantom of the Paradise. 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe. From Greece to glitter and beyond. The story of a sound, the man who created it. The girl who sang it, the monster who stole it, and the phantom who haunts the paradise, the ultimate rock palace. Phantom of the Paradise. My music is for Phoenix. Only she can sing it. Anyone else that tries, dies. Phoenix. Phoenix. Well, you told me one time that you'd be somebody, that you weren't working just to survive. 
you better get yourself a castrato for this. Paul Williams as Swan. And the angels that defeated them. I want you to stop terrorizing the paradise and rewrite your cantata. And the Phantom. Phantom of the Paradise. Maybe the best way to start unpacking this is to perhaps talk about all the various influences that went into inspiring this because there's so many, like it's basically a pastiche of so many wonderful things from the original Phantom of the Opera, uh, I guess not the original, the 1940s Phantom of the Opera movie, but Oscar Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray or Edgar Allan Poe's Cask of Amontillado, even like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to a degree. I mean, mm-hmm. and of course, Faust. I mean, uh, and I guess I've read the play Dr. Faustus, and I re- or at least I pretended to read Goethe's the original Faust when uh, during my uh, a world literature class at UVA. I'm not entirely sure that I finished it. I think I started it, but then pretended to have read it. But talk a little bit first just about all the various ingredients that inform this before we get into just what a wild, unconventional, utterly unique movie this is. Yeah, I, I mean, this uh, movie still boggles my mind in the way it got assembled. Um, but yeah, all those uh, all those sort of inspirational sources that you just mentioned uh, definitely apply to the, the movie. Also, I think there's, a, there's an opera by uh, Carl Maria von Weber called uh, Der Freischutz, um, which is about a rifleman that makes a deal with the devil. Um, and there's a lot of similarity between what happens in Phantom of the Paradise on the Faustian side and that opera. And it's certainly the approach that Brian De, De, De Palma took to Phantom of the Paradise, I think is very operatic. Like it's super over the top, like everything's at 11. Uh, the camp aesthetic is going wild. And I think that's one of the reasons I love it so much, because even though everything's over the top, it's fine. It all fits together in a weird way. Like it it uh, it manages to uh, to support itself, kind of like uh, Mandy did a couple of years ago. Absolutely. <laughs> but in the original Faustian bargain, doesn't Faust make a deal with the devil just for knowledge? I feel like it'd be one thing if you're like, I want to be a rock star. I want to be a porn star. I want to be a movie star. I want to be a star. But I think the original Faust is like, you know what? I just want to know more stuff. It's like, you know what? You could go to the library and read and, <laughs> and achieve all the knowledge <laughs> that you want. Yeah. No, I think... Um, um, in the the original Faust story um, by Goethe, uh, I think that um, it's he he's getting getting older. Like Faust is getting older, and he wants to get all the knowledge in, that's left to get in the world immediately, and that's gotcha. why he makes the deal. Uh, yeah, but uh, I could be wrong about this, but I believe that um, you know before Faust was uh, the Christopher Marlowe play, the tragic comedy of yeah, Dr. Yeah, I've got Faustus. it open right here. Uh, so Christopher Marlowe wrote his play in 1587, and yeah. if Shakespeare hadn't lived, Christopher Marlowe would probably be Shakespeare, because he was he was that good. He was just, just shy of being Shakespeare himself. So was Goethe's version... When did that get uh, published? Yeah, I think the 1800s. Oh, gotcha. So Christopher Marlowe beat him yeah. to the punch w- way in advance. Interesting. All right, so all right, so Johann George Faust, who was a real guy, lived from 1480 to 1540. 
Wow. Okay. So I, I, this is probably something I should have looked up before the episode started, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get up to speed <laughs> as quickly as possible just through the use of uh, Wikipedia. So how did all these myths and legends about him really get underway? So, all right. So I'm looking here. Goethe's version is from 1808. Yeah. And Christopher Marlowe, um, now I'm just saying 1604. Interesting. Maybe he started it earlier than that. But then, of course, it was turned into uh, Litz's Faust Symphony in 1857. Yeah, back to Liszt. Um, but yeah, I think that the the progenitor of uh, Faust may I've read that it, it may have uh, it may loop back to a story in the New Testament uh, called Simon Magus. Gotcha. Uh, about a guy who you know. I, I actually haven't read it, but um, about a guy who is a magician, uh, you know, in the times uh, of the, the New Testament. So, Excellent. Well, when I think of magic, I just immediately think of uh, D&D and so on and so forth, because they, I either think of that or I think of Adam Warlock's alter ego from uh, from the future who comes back to uh, to take over the universe with this church of universal truth. So, yeah, it's a really cool looking word. Magus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's for the serious mage, you know. Um, but um, but yeah, uh, Phantom of the Paradise. I mean, I, I just just to to put this in in the sort of the history of my life. Uh, I used to live in Westwood or West LA, mm -hmm. and um, uh, at the National Theater there, uh, they had a huge poster of Phantom of the Paradise, and I was fascinated with that poster. And that was the movie that my parents forbade me to see. So of course. <laughs> It made me want to see it all the more. Absolutely, um, that's the way it goes. Yeah, so I think I finally saw it at the New Art, like as a revival uh, type thing when I was 11 or 12, and that was the perfect age for me to experience this movie. It was everything I ever dreamed of and more, and it really got me into horror and music. And um, honestly, uh, I mean, the, the two the two main figures of Swan and the Phantom uh, slash Winslow uh, really, like, that's who I wanted to be. Like, I, I, I was like, those are my heroes, you know, the, the guys that really understand music and are great like, at it. Hopefully less gullible than Winslow, because as terrifying as Winslow becomes, as he slowly in various stages becomes this terrifying apparition, he still remains a bit of a gullible dumbass throughout the entire movie. It's like, how many times right. are you going to let Swan get get the advantage of you? Right. Yeah, he's he's naive, um, kind of like uh, the Phantom in Phantom of the Opera is, is naive. He's, he's sort of like the archetype of the, uh, the crazed artist. Like, art is all that matters. He doesn't really care about any other part of the life. Uh, of his life. And, you know, there are people like that that exist even today, you know, people that just want to create music and do their thing and they're great at it and they're single-minded at it and they need people around them to do the other things. Or like comic book creators who are great at coming up with great stories and characters, but they basically sign away the rights. Like the guys who invented Superman sold off the rights for 250 bucks. It's like, oh. well, maybe I should have, uh, thought a little bigger <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh it's a it's a full-time uh, career to be business savvy um but uh very few people have both both sides of the brain but i think if you look at uh like one of the things i think is so fascinating about phantom of the paradise is how much thought and care went into the characters of winslow and swan um usually a villain doesn't have that much thought put into him. He's just there to sort of screw up what the hero is trying yeah, to do. There's so much depth and detail to his character, as much if not more so than Winslow himself. Yeah, but uh, but I mean, in in a I lot mean, the of opening uh, of the movie is about Swan. It's not about Winslow. The opening of the movie is Rod Serling him fucking self in yeah. the best voice imaginable, doing this elaborate intro about all the accomplishments of Swan. So you're like, well, who is this movie really about? 
Right. I, I love the lead up to the, the reveal of Swan that you don't even see him at first. Like yeah. you just see his hands and his voice. Yeah. Well, this uh, film is the story of that search, of that sound, of the man who made it, the girl who sang it, and the monster who stole it. I mean, it's, it's so epic and so bone chilling. And this is, I mean, this is a bit of a cliche to say about a lot of movies where every time you see it, it gets a little better. Phantom of the Paradise, the first time I saw it, I think I understood or appreciated about 1% of it. And every time I watch it, I'm like, this movie is so much better than I remember. It's fucking incredible. Just got so many layers to kind of peel away. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I think that um, one of the reasons why it's still, uh, I mean, let's face it, I can understand why it wasn't a a critical or a commercial success when it came out. It's it's, a flop. Yeah, it's it's insane. Like it's uh, there's there's really it's so all over the place that only a few people can appreciate something like this. Um, but I happen to be one of those people, and I, I know you are too. Um, but uh, man, it, it's just it's just a tremendous uh, accomplishment to to get this made. I, I can't even imagine. Well, the reason it got made is also the reason that it also failed. But they basically had no errors and emissions insurance, and so they used all these mm-hmm. names and characters that they perhaps couldn't necessarily use legally, and it really made it made it difficult to release the movie. Like errors and emissions insurance. It's expensive and it sucks when you're an independent filmmaker trying to get a movie off the ground. Like, oh my God, do we really have to spend all this money on making sure that the film is actually releasable? But the answer is yes, because if you can't release it, then you're in deep, deep trouble. So it took them years after they finished it to even get it into theater. So Brian De Palma, obviously, when we think of Brian De Palma now, it's, oh my God, he made fucking Scarface and he made Carrie and The Untouchables and Carlita's Way and Mission Impossible and all these beloved movies. He had made very few movies at this point, most of which were not particularly commercial. Like he'd made Hi Mom. I think he'd made. Did he make. Did he shoot this before Sisters, but it got released? after because sister uh, yeah was i don't know f- if he shot it before but he, he it released after yeah and so like sisters was like the first inkling we get that he's going to be like the heir to hitchcock in terms of creating these really intense thrillers yes. but when he embarked upon phantom of the paradise he was a largely untested unknown quantity and yeah it, it almost kind of broke him in a way and it wasn't until carrie in 76 that he really established himself as this major commercial dynamo yeah. Um, well, it, it like uh, the movies that you mentioned that he made before Phantom, uh, I, I, I think Phantom of the Paradise is considered it's an art film. I mean, it's uh, it, it's a statement and uh, something that had never been attempted before, despite the lawsuits <laughs> that happened to him for little bits of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think one of the reasons why it still endures as a cult classic uh, these days is because it's every bit as relevant now as it was in 1973. I mean, it's a a classic tale. This tale will be relevant. It's always been relevant for centuries. To what degree are you willing to sell your soul for success or something that you want? And it's an immortal tale. And it's amazing that it's not done more frequently. It's such a classic, something like a star is born classic scenario. One star's on the way up. One's on the way down. They meet in the middle. They fall in love. It's tragic. But these kind of tragic scenarios they endure because they're so they kind of get at the root of all artistic ambition and i I feel like this is a concept that's ripe for being kind of revamped and reinterpreted every couple of years and it'll never get boring yeah absolutely i I mean in in these days in the you know the era of you know 
America's most talented singer and, and uh, you know, masked uh, celebrity and all that stuff. I, I think that producers uh, like Swan, you know, sort of creating the sound of, of musicians uh, is more relevant than ever. Uh, and certainly the way the music business is run. And I love how he so quickly and casually discard certain people. Like when he's talking about like, oh, so-and-so's finished. She'll be forgotten. Like, it's just like, it's all about the now. It's all about what's next. It's all about what's new. Like looking for the new sound to open the paradise theater and it's it's just everybody's disposable and how like Winslow when he signs his deal with the devil to like rewrite his cantata as he's writing and they're force feeding him pills for breakfast like out of a briefcase they're layering up outside the door with bricks and cement it's like (laughs) he's sitting there they're bricking him into the room as he's composing it's like it's just the perfect metaphor for how the music industry functions and of course Paul Williams He's a marvelous composer in his own right. He wrote all the music for the movie, and he just hurls himself into this character so incredibly brilliantly. And I, I like seeing villains who take delight in being evil. Like when he sees Winslow's face and all the scars from the record pressing machine, he's like, "Oh, you look horrible," and he kind of smiles as he says it. <laughs> yeah. he, he just he's having so much fun. And even like this is a line that would never be made put into a movie today. But when he finds Winslow hanging out in his uh, his boudoir of beautiful babies, and he says, "Get this fag out of here," and it's like it's just yep. as evil and dark as the record industry can get. Yeah, um, it, it, yeah, that's it's it's interesting you should bring that up because I think yeah, there's a couple of politically incorrect moments in this movie, even for 1974, um, but it has still been embraced by every community of the people in those communities that love music and horror and, uh, you know, um, huge epic stories like this, because it's such a brilliant work of art that I think people look beyond it. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. If somebody were to watch Phantom of the Paradise and the only thing that could be that they would, the only way they would react might be to be offended by like the way they are just casually eating people alive sexually, physically, creatively in order to be successful. Like that's the whole point of the movie is that they're treating people in an unfair, horrible fashion. Like that's why they're the villains. And so it's like right. the, the, the whole point is to be offended. It's supposed to be, you're supposed to be shocked and outraged at the way the music industry treats these people. So I feel like they would be missing the point if they were to be offended and unable to enjoy the movie. It's like, cause they're, you're, reacting to the villains of the story. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. One, one of the things I, uh, I learned in, um, in the music business was, uh, that the, the record company controls the terms of the agreement. Not only do they control the terms of, of the agreement with the artist, but they control what those terms mean. Uh, and that kind of blew my mind. That was a, a, like a, there've been many moments in my career <laughs> where I've had like, oh, Phantom of the Paradise. Like, you know, that's- well, it reminds me of that scene where he's reading the contract and the Phantom yeah. says, the party of the first part gives the party of the second part and his associates full power to do with him at their pleasure, to rule, to send, to fetch, or carry him or his, be it either body, soul, flesh, blood, or goods. What does that mean? And Swan <laughs> says, that's a transportation clause. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, it's all it's all, you know, smile and and uh, and uh, man, it's so it's so funny. I mean, yeah, the fact that artists are so ephemeral, I, I just wanted to say before we move on uh, to the next part of this, uh, you know, movie that um, a lot of people forget movies after they've been out a couple of years. And ironically, I think um, Phantom of the Paradise should not be forgotten because it's still so relevant um, and uh, and still so fun to watch. Like it's so it's so beautifully edited and. 
uh, exciting and, and bright. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of things to entertain, even short attention spans of today. Yeah. De Palma is one of the most delightfully entertaining filmmakers who's ever lived, whether you're talking about his use of split screen or his insane use of color. This is a guy who really understands the grammar and the language of cinema and how to use sight and sound to the best of his ability to deliver just a riveting tale from start to finish. And I think for me, what keeps it so fresh is how first time you watch it, you don't necessarily appreciate this, but you're getting to hear and appreciate different versions of different songs. It's like, oh, like whether you're talking, like when you first hear Winslow playing his cantata on the piano and it's so innocent mm-hmm. and so hopeful, but you hear, like it's amazing just how many versions of the songs that they're able to pack into a relatively short movie. But over the course of the film, whether you're talking about songs like Old Souls or whatever the case may be, whether it's sung by Beef or by Jessica Harper's character, Phoenix, I, I love just how it plays with the idea of what is pop pop music. You can do it like the Juicy Fruits or you can do it like Winslow or you can do it like Phoenix, and they're all valid in their own way. And of course, when Beef is complaining about how the cantata's been written for a chick, and he's like, you better get yourself a castrata to sing it. And of course, <laughs> once again, Paul Williams and yet another non-PC line says, you can sing it better than any bitch (laughs) (laughs) yes it just makes me fucking howl yeah Yeah. it's an evil dark movie but it's like deliciously evil and dark and so i i I think i've seen this movie 10 times now and each time i'm like this movie fucking rolls and i've got the soundtrack on my ipad i I never grow tired of it yeah it's a great soundtrack Uh, i mean it's very well produced um yeah, well, I mean, I guess getting Paul Williams involved uh, at some point um, was was part of that equation. And all signs point to De Palma working really well with, with Williams. I mean, I, either the, the give and take was something that both, both men were into, like they were uh, – both uh, co-authors of this movie in, in, a, in a big way because the music's so important um, and and it's so good. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, obviously it was a passion project for De Palma, but um, it was also a passion project for Williams because he was sort of famous for writing soft rock at yeah. that time. And this was his time this is a to... true rock opera. I think it's the best rock opera ever on film. I think it leaves Rocky Horror Picture Show in its dust. I think it leaves Tommy in its dust. Like, for whatever reason, in the 70s, it had a lot of rock operas. And I don't think any of them can hold a candle to Phantom of the Paradise. But it took me, probably until I was like 40, to realize that. It took me a long time to realize what a special movie it is. <laughs> Dobies. 
Like a child who was always poor, reaching out for more, I could feel the hunger growing. As I lost control, I swore I'd sell my soul. How's that? Try it. Phoenix. Try it again. Phoenix. And again? Phoenix. Well, at least you can talk with this. You can plug yourself into the console for singing. You really think she's that good? She's too good for you. But when it comes to Paul Williams, I love the little times where we actually get to hear him participating in the music, like when when he's trying to basically fix Winslow's voice. Mm. And it's wins. It's actually Paul Williams' voice that we're hearing as he mm. kind of dials in with all these various filters, a way to get him to speak. Or the very end, as you pointed out, one of your DMs, we were talking about the very end song. That's the hell of it. But you're like yeah. Tarantino clearly was inspired by this for the ending of Kill Bill Volume Two, where you basically get to relive all the characters and all the highlights to that great tune, uh, Malagueña, Malagueña Sale Rosa, which is yeah. a fucking killer tune in its own right that Robert Rodriguez and his band played. But hearing Paul Williams singing that's the hell of it at the very end, it ends the movie on this incredible, triumphant, soaring note that really it's one of the reasons that this movie lasts so well is that it sticks to landing in the best possible way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I love that that scene where uh, that you just described with uh, Williams altering uh, Winslow's voice. Uh, or I should say Swan altering Winslow's voice um, to more closely resemble, like he keeps tweaking it until it's, it's Swan's own voice. Yeah. <laughs> and every producer like wants that. He's like, yeah, yeah, this is great, but I want it to sound a little more like this, you know, more and like of course me. He, exactly. And, and Swan is like, uh, uh, you know, he's, he was a, a very famous recording artist at one point. And after he made the deal, obviously, since he's not aging anymore, he can't be uh, a celebrity. He's, he's, he's know. under contract as well, as he says, like when Winslow tries to kill him and stabs him and nothing happens, he's like, I'm under, Win I'm under contract to Winslow. It's like, whoa, like he's the, the the like the proverbial devil that he, that the, the, they made the bargain with. However, there's an even higher power than him who yeah. has that like picture of Dorian Gray scenario going where I think I guess it's like the the footage where he is talking to the devil that must be preserved like the painting in the picture of Dorian Gray. And if anything ever happens to it, then he'll age abruptly and overnight and that sort of thing, which obviously ends up happening. But yeah, it's incredible how they're able to pull all those various influences in. But when it comes to the actual Phantom himself. I love really detailed, complex origin stories. And I love how we see Winslow go from this douchey dude with like fluffy poofball hair who's so innocent and naive to first they shave his head and then they yank all his teeth out and replace it with metal because they don't want to get uh, him to get infected. And then he gets his face fried and then he finds the mask and he gets the cloak and then he finally gets his voice. But it takes like 35, 40 minutes before he emerges as the Phantom. And it's like you get to appreciate the journey. It's not like Joker falls into a vat of toxic fluid and comes out, boom, I'm the Joker. It takes, it's by degree. And I feel like you really get to appreciate and savor this gradual transformation into this monstrosity that he becomes. I, yeah. And I think that's a perfect metaphor for what actually happens to artists. Um, <laughs> it, when, when they come, when they come face to face with um, the monster of commerce, like they, they start getting whittled down little by little. Sometimes they give in early. Sometimes they resist it long and they get punched around and kicked around a little bit first. And then eventually they, 
they embrace the destiny. Yeah, we see that a little bit with Phoenix. Phoenix, she's so yeah. beautiful and so wonderful and so amazing. But when she gets a taste of the audience cheering for her after she sings Old, is it Old Souls? Is that the song? It yeah. was just pure magic. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about how beautiful that song is. But she's like, just give me that crowd. And then suddenly she's making out with Swan and she's taking drugs in the back of the limo. And we can see a little bit of corruption going on in there as well. Like it doesn't take much to kind of get over that tipping point where you just embrace the dark side. Right. Well, she's uh, she's living her dream at that at that moment. So she gives into everything else to make it happen. Um, and uh, and of course, it helps Swan because he that's exactly the way he phrased it, because he knew that was going to happen. He's like, won't you give me your voice? You know, yeah, it's like the Little uh, Mermaid scenario. <laughs> yeah. But um, but yeah, the 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 dynamic between um, the Phantom and Swan again, uh, I think this last time that I saw it uh, researching, just, you know, reviewing for this show. Um, it, it really, it never occurred to me how well-developed Swan is. And he, he's, it's almost like they're the same character and Swan is the one with the pragmatism and the intellect and the toys to make art. And then Winslow is the talent. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's, there's a thing in literature that that reminded me of, um, that Nietzsche made popular, um, called the, the Apollonian Dionysian um, dichotomy. I don't know if, if you've ever heard of this, but I, I never had until I, I looked it up. But lay, lay um, it on me. Yeah, apparently, um, you know, it, it goes back to the the Greek gods Apollo and and Dionysus. Uh, how like a Dionysian character is someone who sort of feels their way through life and passion, you know, with passion expresses themselves. Whereas the Apollonian character is intellectual, pragmatic, reserved. Uh, you know, uh, good at waiting for things, stuff like that. And, um, you know, uh, that's a perfect way to describe Swan uh, as the the Apollonian part of this. And it really reminded me of the dynamic between uh, Guts and Griffith in Berserk, um, where Griffith is the same type of villain as Swan. Like he's he's upfront about everything that he he wants to do, but he's amoral uh, about it. And the other half, the the hero part of of the story, pure is, um, instinct and guts. It's, it's, it's in his name. His name's guts. He, yeah, <laughs> he uses exactly. his gut to guide his instincts. It's yeah. funny, like when you talk about just brief aside about guts. I play a lot of Dark Souls and Dark Souls Three, and it's incredible just how frequently when I get invaded or I do another invasion, how many guts I encounter. There's so many people who model their weapons and their attire in the game to look exactly like Guts, or they just name the character Guts outright, but it's just incredible how to this day there's so many people who love and adore Guts, but if not for you, I would not appreciate those encounter those characters that I encounter in PvP on Dark Souls. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, yeah, no, I, I had a blast doing that show with you and, and this one, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, um, I, I uh, the locations, um, that's another thing that was really cool about Phantom. I mean that uh, that skylight. I think that skylight scene that you were talking about, where uh, you know Swan says he's under contract to, was uh, shot in Los Angeles. But uh, there's the book bindery from Dallas, and um, you know there's a bunch of famous. I guess they shot mainly in Texas, according gotcha. to the the notes. Yeah, but um, well, one thing I didn't realize until I was watching it this time, I was doing my research. You know, people love to try and tear down or belittle De Palma constantly talking about how everything he did well he stole from or learned from Hitchcock blah 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 which I don't think is the case at all obviously he had 
adored Hitchcock, and he very clearly was inspired by him on multiple occasions with movies like um, Body Double, which very clearly is like inspired by Rear Window and things like that. But this movie actually has an Orson Welles homage where it's an homage with the bomb in the trunk of the car, but you've got the Juicy Fruit singing this ridiculous song about carburetors and things like that. Right. But at the same time, but De Palma twisted and makes it his own because it's a split screen. So Orson Welles was not using split screen Touch of Evil. So I like how he's inspired by Touch of Evil, but he's doing split screen and you have this crazy Paul Williams music. So I feel like that's the best kind of homage where you take something that's cool you insert it into your movie, but then you add additional layers and additional technique, and you make it your own, which is kind of what Swan tells Beef to do with the song. He's like, he's like, <laughs> he's like, me, I can rewrite it and do whatever. He's like, yeah, make it a. I can't remember the exact line that Swan says. And then of course his like henchman out in the audience is like, nobody cares about anything. Like he, he's totally <laughs> indifferent to whatever changes Beef might want to make. Right, uh, and um, and yeah, and of course, Beef totally responds to that because he's a diva. You know, um, he's a diva capable of wearing a belt complete with antlers on it, um, which is <laughs> yeah. probably the most insane thing I've ever seen in uh, in in a costume on uh, on, on in a movie. But um, yeah, there's. You know, I, another thing I noticed this time around was the the bird imagery. There's there's so much bird imagery. Tons. There's the yeah. the, From the label. Records. Yeah, absolutely, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, Swan is a bird, and the Phantom has like a bird mask, and Phoenix, and like it's, it's birds flying all over this thing. <laughs> yeah, Phoenix. It's uh, every time I even say or think of her name, it's impossible not to remember. When's is going Phoenix with that like electronic <laughs> voice? But it's such a great <laughs> gift. People are constantly posting that, but. Yeah, his obsession with her, it's funny how, like, initially it seems kind of sweet, and he's helping her, like, walk through the song during, like, the audition, but it definitely, yeah. you know, we live in the era where people are always talking about, like, oh, well, have you gone over into, like, predatory kind of creep territory, and his kind of territorial possessive affection for her, it's bordering, or... I shouldn't say bordering, well past the point of obsessive. And she, anytime she yeah. bumps into him, she's horrified. I mean, she, she, she recoils in terror running, because runs running, screaming for the hills. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I think that, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a crush going on there. Um, but I think it's excusable because Winslow is such um, a naive character. That, and he has no course, voice anymore. She will be his voice moving forward. Right, right. He's he's right. He's a child with a tremendous artistic talent and tremendous strength and tremendous rage. <laughs> you know? So because um, even so before she, his transformation, he's got a temper. Like when this fat henchman suggests that the juicy fruits might dig like one of the tunes, and he grabs him and slams him against the wall. So Winslow's not entirely this wonderful, beautiful kind of delicate flower. He's got a a bit of a passive aggressive savage side as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, speaking um, of Phoenix, right. you know that Linda Ronstadt apparently auditioned but got beat out by Jessica Harper for the role of Phoenix, which is incredible. I, I have heard that. Um, I I can't picture anyone but Jessica Harper in that role because I thought she was fantastic. It's um, my favorite but... performance by her. She's in a lot of Woody Allen movies like Stardust Memories, and obviously she was incredible in Suspiria, but this is the Jessica Harper role. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I think that uh, she was... I mean, she obviously was pretty young um, when they shot it, uh, but I think it was her first major movie role. So De Palma, I'm sure, knowingly used her, you know, sort of being an ingenue to, um, you know, inform the character of Phoenix. Yeah, prior to this, she was in a, a brief appearance in NBC's Children's Theater in 1971, playing a member of the Goggles. And then in 1973, she did a short called The Garden Party, where she played Peggy. And then, yeah, her first feature, Phantom of the Paradise. So, But obviously, yeah. that came out, was shot like two years prior, so she probably shot it between the TV series and the short. 
Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, you know, as a, a music super former music supervisor, um, I guess I'm still a music. Occasionally, I lend my skills to things, but uh, yeah, I think her voice seems uh, maybe a little unpolished, but it's excellent. Like she's an excellent singer, um, and uh, that song "Old Souls" I think is the is the perfect platform for her. Um, yeah, it's like the man, emotional peak of the movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and she she carries it, man. She's uh, she's incredible. Well, also because it comes in contrast to this kind of wild song that Beef performed just beforehand. Like first you have like Kiss before the before Kiss even exists coming out and assembling <laughs> his body from the I love that like they're stabbing audience members and like ripping off legs and body parts and they assemble him like Frankenstein behind. He comes to life, he sings this song, and of course the Phantom kills him with a lightning bolt. And but it's you know, it's a pretty rough tune in a lot of ways and especially the way he sings it and then to have jessica harper come out and just sing like a little angel it just brings the whole movie like slowing down to a crawl in the best possible way and it's yeah it's probably like the one moment of the movie where you're not like recoiling in horror from some of the things that you're witnessing yes yes um yeah and i i i've read that that um that electrocution um, may be the real reason why uh, Led Zeppelin's management uh, came down so hard on De Palma for using Swan Song. They were originally mm. using a Swan Song for the record label uh, because one of the people in the man- management team uh, managed a Scottish rock recording artist that was actually electrocuted on stage. Gotcha. So when De Palma sent them the movie, they were like, no way. Like, we can't be associated with this. So it was a just a happenstance thing that the guy took really personally. And, you know, they became really litigious about it. Gotcha. Well, before we move on, I got to mention one uh, person that's working on this movie behind the scenes who I've loved and adored my entire life. But you have the great Sissy Spacek who right around this time is doing things like Badlands, but she was working as a set dresser because her boyfriend, Jack Fisk, uh, was the film's production designer, and she auditioned um, or she auditioned for the role of Phoenix, but lost, obviously. But apparently she did such a poor job as a set dresser that, according to legend, she ruined a day's worth of filming. To what degree <laughs> that is true, I don't know. But when I was um, that same Mississippi literature and music class I mentioned earlier, I was in that class, Summer 99, and I noticed there was a person in there who looked really familiar, and I couldn't quite figure out why. And I kept talking to her periodically off and on, but her name was Skylar, and her name was Skylar Fisk. And I was like, wait, Skylar Fisk, Fisk. This girl kind of looks like Sissy Spacek, who lives near Charlottesville. I was like, is your dad Jack Fisk? I was trying to be cool, showing up my movie rep, my, my movie now. She was like, yeah, how'd you know? I was like, so your mother must be Sissy Spacek. She was like, yeah. I was like, oh my fucking God. And so, yeah, she went on and did some movies like Orange County and things like that. And like, Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like some movie called like Snow Day or some stupid thing. But in any mm. event, uh, Jack Fisk and Sissy Spacek's daughter was there in that same class. And she was super cool. But I only got to hang out with her that one summer. Yeah, no, I, I didn't know they had a kid together, but that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I... Uh, I know that uh, Sissy Spacek worked on Wardrobe um, in Phantom of the Paradise, and of course she starred in Carrie two years later. Yeah, <laughs> um, but um, but man, just a word about uh, Jack Fisk's work. Uh, I mean, it's phenomenal. Like the the way he uses the predominant like colors of red and black. Like it's uh, it totally re- keeps reminding you that uh, you know Swan has a satanic power behind him. Yeah, and, when people uh, talk about color schemes, this is what they're talking yeah. about. This is a color scheme that informs the mood of the movie, and it's not done in a haphazard fashion just for like frivolous effects. It's like, it's part of the storytelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's um, that's such an awesome uh, degree of separation. I personally, I weirdly have three de- three one degree separation separations from Phantom of the Paradise. I mean, one is uh, uh, Angeline, um, who you can see like in the Phoenix, when Phoenix is about to audition 
and they're on that staircase uh, at the AFI. Uh, the one of the girls, like the girl that's right behind Phoenix, I think is Angeline, is a young Angeline. If you've lived in LA, um, if you're listening to the show, and yeah, you and see you, the billboards, the, the yeah. billboards, yeah, and she I can feel myself me. becoming more famous every minute. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, she approached me uh, in uh, the parking lot of a Calabasas uh, a mini mall one time trying to sell T-shirts out of her pink Corvette. Uh, and um, I didn't know till later that she was in Phantom. Uh, and then, of course, like one of my first weeks at New World, one of my guests um, of my boss was Paul Williams. Like oh, he walks yeah. in. Yeah, I mean, he was composing then, so uh, he he walked in and uh, I shook his hand and I was just like, dude, he's still real active on Twitter. You should reach out to him. And be like, I love you. <laughs> I know. Um, no, he's he's still active on Twitter. I, I find it hilarious that his Twitter uh, photo is Swan <laughs> on it because he's he's done a lot. In well, it's either the last... that or Smokey and the Bandit. You got to go with one or one of those two parts. Yeah, he's great and Smokey too. Uh, but. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, he's done a lot. Uh, Williams has done a lot in the, in the last 10 years to protect songwriters, um, weirdly, uh, as, you know, since we're discussing this film. Um, but I, I just found out he's going to get the Johnny Mercer Award on June 11th uh, from the Songwriters Hall of Fame. So he's, um, he's a big protector of songwriters and their rights and, and heads up ASCAP, the Performing Rights Society, too. So Very cool. Well, what else can we say about Phantom of the Paradise? Because this is one of those movies that you could devote like... A- I tried never to talk about a movie longer than the actual running time of the movie, but Phantom of the Paradise is one of those movies where you could. But when it comes to the actual individual songs, like the soundtrack scattered throughout, do you have any personal favorites? Yeah. Um, well, the soundtrack is amazing. Uh, it uh, and, and also the score is a really good fit, but it you, you wouldn't think it would be with, with the music because it's, it's very unorthodox as well. Um, but uh, yeah, the... Um, sort of a creepy organ that they have in the background whenever you see swan and stuff like that it's uh, it's very uh, it's it's very unusual um, but I think that the the reason um, I, I just I love it in a movie where the storytellers um, use something significant to not only inform the story but also propel the movie forward at the same time um, and I think that the fact that there are like the music the music styles of the 50s the 60s and the 70s are represented in the movie I mean it serves to make it more immortal um, as a soundtrack but it's also about that like the movie's about that like Swan is talking about um, how music used to be and how music is now and yeah, how it like, will be he brought the blues to Britain he brought Liverpool to America he brought folk and rock together his band the Juicy Fruit single-handedly gave birth to the nostalgia wave of the 70s now he's looking for the new sound of the spheres to inaugurate his own Xanadu his own Disneyland the paradise the ultimate rock palace I mean that, that tells you everything you need to know about all the different flavors of music that are going to be stirred together in this uh, in this movie yeah, yeah, uh, and the fact that it's it's all supposedly based around one song. And by the way, you know, I am still waiting for a karaoke night that that has Faust, <laughs> so I can belt it out like Winslow. You just need but, to uh, host your own gathering. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like if uh, I feel like we all have to be the instigators of what we want the world to resemble. And if there's not like a movie out there that you want to see, then you need to make that movie. And so it sounds like you need to 
rent out a space, invite some of your friends, get them liquored up, and then you can subject them to your uh, your rendition of Faust. Indeed, subject is the key word there. Um, How but, is uh, your singing voice? Uh, I'm okay. Uh, like I, I mean, I, I understand what pitch is, but uh, I'm not a practiced singer. Like so. if you're backed into a corner and you got a gun to your head and you have to sing a song that you know you can hit all the notes, what is your, your go-to in your back pocket? Uh, um. I would say probably uh, some Depeche Mode song or Queens of the Stone Age. Like those guys have similar range gotcha. than, than I do, which is very narrow for me, unfortunately. In my 20s, <laughs> my go-to was All My Lovin' performed by the Beatles. Whether or not I can still hit those notes, I don't know. Because back in the 20s, in my 20s, I drove around L.A. all the time. So I would naturally, like everybody, sing along with certain songs in the car. But in New York, yeah. I don't have opportunities to sing along with anything ever. Like I'm not going to sit in my apartment singing like a like a crazy person because i i'll feel embarrassed <laughs> my neighbors can hear me but in your car everybody gets to be an operatic total badass so i haven't practiced singing in a very very long time but once upon a time i did like the like the chorus in high school and i thought i could sing relatively well but who knows what the hell i can do now well yeah um then you definitely understand uh the dynamics of singing uh and that's a great first step but um yeah i think with karaoke um the the booze intake is is primary into uh sort of thinking how well you're singing well people also <laughs> forget sometimes that just because you love a song doesn't mean that it's the right song for you to sing because they might have a different vocal range and it's like you have to kind of almost like sing it in your head like, oh, so where, where does the song go? I remember one time this girl, we were in Japan at a karaoke club and this girl throws in Barracuda, but she'd kind of forgotten like half the song. It's like, la, 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 like this like crazy screaming. And, and she was so embarrassed. She just started saying the words like, All right, you're, now you're just boring the shit out of me. You're like just being lame because you're afraid to try and like to, to, to reach those heights. You're basically going to have to humiliate yourself in the attempt, but it's like, don't pick fucking Barracuda. That's a really hard song to sing. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. Oh, man. Um, well, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I got to say, James, uh, I mean, Phantom of the Paradise is uh, is one of the most important movies in my life because of how, how much it informed what I wanted to do with my career and how much it set on fire, like my love of the music industry and um, – and all the the themes that run through it uh, ended up being important to me in, in later life. And in, in my writing, I'm still drawing inspiration from it. Uh, a lot of my uh, short stories in, in The Sound of Fear, my collection, have to do with Faustian bargains or musicians or conductors and things like that. Well, have you ever felt compelled to play a little gag on somebody when you're doing business with them to like have them like sign things in blood or like uh, <laughs> the, the one phrase from the contract that say, all articles which have been excluded shall be deemed included. What does that mean? He says, oh, that's a clause to protect you, Winslow. Anyway, what right. difference does it make? What choice do you have? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I'm sure the music business has literally been trying to <laughs> to put that in their contracts for years. Or like signing but, people um, to lifelong contracts. It's like, apparently, you're not allowed to sign people to lifelong contracts. And you just yeah, like, and he's all complaining about it. Yeah, and it, but that, something like that actually happened with with like with Nirvana or something like that. It was probably like, like a, Frank Sinatra. He had that like contract he wanted to get out of early in his career as well. Yeah. And, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all if everything, everything that you that comes off as funny in Phantom of the Paradise um, has actually happened in the music business to somebody at some time. You know, it's just that it's they aggregate it all into one <laughs> one character, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, well, it's a special movie. And I think as much as I loved it's funny how like when I was in college, 
I thought I was a rabid Brian De Palma fan, but I basically would watch Carlito's Way and Scarface and Carrie over and over and over again while neglecting a lot of his other movies. And it wasn't until I started this podcast where I started going back and watching things like High Mom, which I think is a neglected classic. It's an absolutely incredible movie. And obviously Phantom of the Paradise but and Sisters. But I, I saw Sisters in college on VHS, but I think that early, weird, experimental period of Brian De Palma is absolutely worthy of the deep dive and exploration. But I think a lot of people just think, all right, well, his career begins in earnest with Carrie, so I'm going to look at Carrie through Mission Impossible or maybe Snake Eyes and we'll leave it alone. But these early formative years for De Palma are essential, and I think uh, any serious film freak or serious De Palma fan needs to do the deep dive. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I can't I can't recommend him more highly. Um, yeah, the, the only movie of his I might like a little better than Phantom is probably Blowout, um, gotcha. which also deals with audio. Um, it's but, one of uh, Tarantino's personal faves as well. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um but um, but yeah, he's made a lot of great movies and and nothing like Phantom of the Paradise before or since, um, uh, except maybe Dionysus in 69, which is, is, is an art film. Which is um, why I've seen it. Yeah, because I, yeah. I did a written post where I wanted to rank every single movie that he ever made going back to like The Wedding Party, like, which he shot like in 63, but didn't get released until like 66 or 7. But you know, got a very, very young Robert De Niro with his name spelled incorrectly in the credits. So I watched right. every single frame of film that I could get my hands on from the music video to everything and Dionysus in 69 yeah it's split screen and orgies and insanity and it's pretentious but that's the whole point it's like this crazy pretentious erotic production and he wanted to film it in an experimental fashion but you don't get great split screen uh, sequences in Carrie without those early experiments with the process and that's why if like if if he'd done it for the first time with Carrie it probably wouldn't have been as impactful but he'd already practiced it a couple times yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, and I think uh, and you know Winslow, um, you know William Finley is 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 basically the main guy in um, uh, Dionysus. So yeah, the the orgy scenes really remind me of that uh, the Swan Wedding at the end of, of Phantom of the Paradise, where everybody's kind of like just doped out of their mind and, and dancing. Yeah, even even though people are being murdered and and stuff. And uh, yeah, I gotta say that um, even with all the craziness of uh, Phantom. Uh, that scene where, uh, you know, it's sort of ending and the music starts fading out and it, there's like this very um, poignant piano piece that starts playing right before the hell of it starts. Yep. Um, which is actually played by Paul Williams, uh, I, I heard in the liner notes. Um, but uh, that gets my heart every time. Like when when uh, when everything comes together at the end of the movie, I you know I, I get tears welling up, and uh, even even watching it for like uh, like you the tenth tenth or eleventh time, I mean um, I just uh, it just gets me right in the heart. Well, I can't uh, think of a better way to end our discussion on Phantom of the Paradise. So let's move, let's flash forward about a decade into the 80s with an animated movie that has come up in the past on the podcast. Uh, I guess like two and a half or three years ago, Mike Vanderbilt came on to talk about rock and roll and animation. But this movie's so damn good, I am more than happy to do the deep dive a second time. <laughs>
1983, which unites so many astonishing musical talents from Iggy Pop to Lou Reed to Deborah Harry to Earth, Wind & Fire to Cheap Trick. And I think I've been kind of neglecting or sleeping on this movie because when I saw it for that episode of Mike Vanderbilt, I enjoyed a couple of musical numbers, but I wouldn't say I was like in love with it with like a, like a movie like Heavy Metal. But this second time going back and watching it, I really started getting into the world building. I started getting into the story. And when the music at the end finally comes together with Send Love Through, which is basically like Angel Song mixed with a bunch of the other artists that are involved on the piece, it like my emotions were soaring in ways that really surprised me. But for people who may not have even ever heard of rock and roll, what is going on with this flick? What is the concept? Because it's we're getting into almost Lovecraftian territory with this one. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, rock and roll is uh, was made in 1983, and um, it was the first English language Canadian feature animated film. Um, and uh, yeah, clearly they were inspired by heavy metal. Um, but uh, I, I just want to talk first about the the musical side of um, of rock and roll. Uh, it's it's amazing that uh, yeah, most musicals either have a songwriter like like Paul Williams did for Phantom of the Paradise, or a songwriting team um, that write all the music. So everything's sort of uh, you know it's a holistic approach to all the music in the movie. But what the rock and roll guys did was um, decide to you know give the singing of each individual character to individual famous recording artists of the time. Um, so that's what kind of makes the the finale where everybody's singing together so sort of artistically significant because, I mean, first of all, this is 1983, so it's really hard to sync up recordings of, of artists that are recording in different studios, which I'm sure they were. Um, but uh, uh, to, to get them all singing together in one song is significant to the story and significant uh, on a you know sort of a business level that they've managed to swing that, um, but oh, but yeah, but I guess Robin Zander and Deborah Harry when their voices come together when they're it's like killing this demon or sending him back where he came from, it's incredible. I goosebumps the size of like marbles on my arms. I just couldn't believe how much I enjoyed hearing those two voices coming together and then the way the song just swells at the point. I was like, this is fucking. Rock and roll, baby. And I, uh, oftentimes I feel like rock and roll is kind of like a, a, de a dead or dying art form and at a bare minimum it kind of smells funny. But it, mm -hmm. at that moment, rock and roll lives again. Yes, yes. Well, this, uh, I mean, this movie has really embraced the uh, the ideals of, of rock and roll. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a post-apocalyptic animated feature where all the characters, although they are basically human, they're anthropomorphic, they are... Animal. They're, they're evolved animals. You know, they're mice and cats and things like that. Uh, and uh, uh, so the characters have sort of a animalistic appearance. Um, and um, it's uh, it's just, uh, you know, the new society has replaced the old and it's sort of Blade Runner-ish in, in uh, design. Uh, it's beautifully animated. Uh, and uh, it was also at a time where computer graphics were just coming into animation. So they wisely use computer graphics for light shows at concerts and um, and computers. Uh, so it's minimally used, uh, which I love. Uh, and it gives a really uh, beautifully fluid motion to most of the action and um, and lets you really project, you know, your own desires and, and, and uh, you know, feelings into the characters and, and their struggles. 
It was funny how we just talked about Phantom of the Paradise where Swan is looking for the new sound, but in here we have this guy Mock who's looking for the voice. Like the, because he he needs to find a voice that'll allow him to summon in this being from another dimension. And so it's funny how we do have this overlap and these scenarios where it's gonna take like a special talent, but it's gonna be a talent that will be abused and exploited to bring about like this age of darkness. And so it's, yes. uh, I love how, I, I feel like sometimes maybe perhaps like if you're making a movie about rock and roll that the dystopian sci-fi fantasy ingredients would be neglected, but I feel like it does a pretty good job of leaning into that. Like there's this great little bit at one point where Angel and, um, Oh, I'm totally blank. What's the name of the the fellow she's dating in it? Um, oh, uh, Omar. Omar. Yeah. They're basically they're necking in the back of a car and they're hanging out. And they're listening to doo wop, and in the distance you see this giant castle with like a sky of lightning. I was like, wow, like this, that's like a, a two second little moment, but it just allows you to realize just what this world looks like. It it almost reminded me a little bit of like like, like something like Vampire Hunter D, where the where Magnus Lee lives. But it allows your imagination to wonder what is the rest of this world like, and so I, I just really start to appreciate the level of detail that they didn't necessarily need to put in, but felt compelled to do so. Yeah, um, yeah, it looks it looks very lived in, um, and yeah, it makes it it's so so much cooler with a uh, a concept as wild as this, um, you know, summoning a, a, an extra dimensional demon um, in 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 a rock show with the sound, uh, the, or the, uh, I guess I should say the, um, the corralled, uh, and controlled sound of, you know, a beautiful voice. Um, but, um, man, it's, it's just, uh, it's just fantastic the way they, they use, uh, incredibly realistic detail in this fantasy environment to, you know, sort of make you, uh, comfortable in in the concept of the world. Yeah, and like for people who like like hard sci-fi, there's great little bits. Like at one point, they're trying to get over this ravine, and there's a bridge just made out of light. It's like little things. I feel like when you just have like, I don't, it's like they don't try to focus your attention on it too much, but. If you're paying attention every step along the way, like, oh, that's an interesting detail. That's an interesting detail. It just shows they're going the extra mile when it comes to fleshing out this universe. But probably the best fleshed out character in here has got to be Mock, who basically looks, he looks kind of like, like an aging Mick Jagger, but he's got the voice of Lou Reed. And when it comes to Lisa's singing, but when you want to talk about like, you know, another Swan-esque character, but he's a, a Swan who still performs. But mm-hmm. Mock just makes me fucking howl. He's such a, a great villain in so many ways. But I just love how you always, like, he's kind of androgynous and he's a bit of a, a, I guess, a bit of a prima donna in a lot of ways. But when it mm-hmm. comes to certain personas that you expect to encounter in the world of rock and roll, Mock kind of sums up all those negative ingredients into one delightful character. Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there there are some uh, parody elements in this, like you see uh, sort of uh, parodic versions of Mick Jagger and David Bowie and, you know, people that obviously inspired the uh, the artists uh, in the movie. Um, but um, nothing so uh, I mean, I think the the fact that it's it's sort of a parody or a satire of of rock and roll in general uh, protected them from uh, getting any lawsuits from the actual artists, and the fact that there were actual uh, big name artists like uh, like like you mentioned uh, involved in the production of the music itself. So 
Yeah, well, I was, I was watching that documentary on YouTube about the making of behind the scenes, and I just love seeing how invested all the musicians were. None of them were thinking, oh, I'm doing this stupid cartoon for kids. I'm just going to phone phone it in. They really tried to go the extra mile, and they're talking about how, like, how much fun it was that there was already a story there, and sometimes... Like just inventing a song, like plucking it from thin air can be a huge challenge. But if you've got a little narrative to build upon, it starts inspiring with all sorts of cool ideas. But you could tell that Deborah Harry really went fucking all out with Angel Song. And when you yeah. first hear Angel Song, like the first time I saw it, I remember I was really hesitant to kind of give myself over to the movie until suddenly you hear that classic intro and i was like holy shit like this movie just got way better and you just kind of fall in love with the character then and there she she's just so angelic in so many ways but yeah deborah harry i mean the fact that she did this and the prior year did videodrome just shows that she had excellent taste in movies and excellent taste in filmmakers to uh, to collaborate with Oh, yeah. Uh, and I mean, she has a fantastic voice. And um, I, I would say that, the, yeah, the, the song in um, in rock and roll that she sings is is definitely worthy of, of her solo career or blondie career. I mean, it's it's got a great melody. Uh, and the you know, the people who made the movie uh, had the wherewithal to notice that and make it the central theme uh, of the of the movie and of the character. So, yeah, to go back to the story, um, the unlikely owner of the supernaturally great voice that Mock needs to open up this gate to the other dimension is Angel, um, who's just sort of a, a struggling musician singing with a band who barely gets any stage time, uh, uh, but because of Mock's uh, supreme technology, he figures out immediately that's the one. So the, the middle part of the movie is Mock trying to seduce her into um, doing what he needs to uh, bring down the house, so to speak, at, at his rock concert. It's funny, like you don't necessarily get the feeling that she's in like a ton of danger. And there are times in this movie where perhaps the pace feels a little slack, or almost like moments where like I feel like maybe like some dialogue is like missing, or it just feels like there's like it's like incomplete or unfinished in some ways. But then you'll have these scenes where it all comes together, like when you've got this nightclub scene with earth, wind, and fire music, and you're like fuck yes like let's go there this place is incredible yeah. and so when, when the movie works it really works well yeah that's a great song um and uh, i didn't know that they recorded that for this movie uh but um apparently uh they did and uh it's it's been a pretty famous earth wind and flower uh, f- uh fire song since then oh it's killer i don't know i mean angel song is my favorite song and obviously because it the way it's utilized and becoming like a component of a much larger song. Like when you're talking about narrative, the idea that like all these dis- like these different pieces of music coming together would be the ultimate weapon for destroying the uh, the demon. Like that's hard to top. But just in terms of like popping in a song and listening to it while you're like you know cleaning your home or making breakfast or whatever, that Earth Wind and Fire tune is fucking awesome. <laughs> That is great. There's there's a lot of great movies uh, or a lot of great music in these movies we're talking about today. Um, yeah, great soundtracks. Uh, yeah, also uh, I noticed watching Rock and Rule this time that Catherine O'Hara is in it as Aunt Edith, yeah. the tattoo artist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. early Catherine uh, O'Hara. Well, let's talk yeah. a little bit about the behind the scenes because there's a ton of stuff going on here when it comes to the com- company that made it, the different versions of the film that are out there. But interesting side note, the company that made it, they were responsible for the 10-minute animated bit from the Star Wars Holiday Special, which was the first appearance of the mighty Boba Fett. So like Star Wars Holiday Special... I don't have 
the sentimental affection for it that a lot of people do because I didn't see it until I was like in like my mid-30s. I was at a Christmas party where I was playing. I was like, what is this like 45-minute sequence with Wookiees talking to each other without subtitles? Like, this is ridiculous. But I do have a lot of affection for Boba Fett. So I do like that this company has made, uh, you know, two cool contributions to the world of animation. But that... That late 70s, early 80s animation style that we see a lot of in heavy metal as well, I am very fond of because it's so rough and crude in a lot of ways, and we very rarely see it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, it's great. Uh, and the uh, yeah, the the feature, or I guess the the animated um, short that uh, the studio did before Rock and Roll was The Devil and Daniel Mouse, which is right along the lines with our theme for today. I mean, it's uh, it's a it's basically a retelling of The Devil and Daniel Webster by Stephen Benet. Um, where there's a, a, a folk singer who makes a contract with the devil and becomes a superstar and leaves her partner behind. Um, and then there's a trial when she tries to get out of her infernal slavery, um, and just like in uh, uh, Devil and Daniel Webster. And, um, and yeah, uh, that's got a great, great soundtrack, too. If you like singer-songwriter stuff, um, that's got a really uh, charming soundtrack. Uh, but they they took that to the next level with rock and roll and and um, and then after that um, they went into TV as far as I can tell they did a, a an animated TV show in the 90s I think that I really loved called Eek the Cat Gotcha um, Yeah um, and uh, they're a yeah Canadian based animation studio as far as I know they're still cranking stuff out. Well, what do you know about the different versions of this movie that are out there? Because I know at one point like one of the like. Like I guess one of the negatives of the film got destroyed, perhaps like in a fire. But there's like conflicting stories out there. But I know when it came to the release, there were different versions for a while. And the, like like the version that I saw on Amazon, I'm not entirely sure if that's considered the definitive version because Amazon's notorious for posting the wrong versions of movies or making the only version that's available one that's not necessarily regarded as the best by people who love the movie, whether you're talking about The Exorcist or Blade Runner or Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Like every time they have a chance to post the wrong version of a movie, they do so. So uh, what, what, what can you tell us about some of the kind of chaotic history about the different versions of this movie? Uh, yeah, I, I think that there's, um, well, I, I know that there's an alternate ending, um, but I, and I have seen it, but honestly, I can't tell the difference between the alternate ending and the ending that's in the restored version, which, uh, is probably the one on Amazon, I assume, uh, but the restored version that you can get, I, I mean, I know the Blu-ray is out of uh, print now, but, um, if you get a copy of the Blu-ray, it's, um, it's basically the, um, the restored version would be what the filmmakers want the film to be. Gotcha. Uh, so, so I don't think the differences are all that, um, all that, uh, discriminating, uh, from each other. But, um, the, uh, I know the movie was called Drats originally. Um, terrible and I, I know. I mean, I, rock and rules a little silly as well, but at least it kind of, you know what you're going to get with a name like Rock and Rule. Yes, I think that's more appropriate for the project. Um, well, what I was reading on Wikipedia about the different versions, they have a, a quick paragraph about it that said, original home video release copies of Rock and Rule are extremely difficult to find. MGM United Artists Home Video released the film on VHS in 1984 and again on Laserdisc in 86. Both of these editions soon went out of print. Bootleg copies of the film ended up being sold at comic conventions, but they were erroneously listing the film as having been done by Ralph Bakshi, which I'm sure he would have been flattered, but Ralph Bakshi, he's got his own rock and roll classic with, um, with American Pop. Yeah. But soon after its demise in the home entertainment market, copies of the film could only be acquired only by writing to this company in Alvana. They'd charge you 80 bucks and they'd send you a video copy of the film. But in 2005, Unearthed Films released the film on DVD. 
The first disc included the theatrical cut, and the second disc included the original cut. Though the original print was destroyed in a fire, this version was taken from a VHS source. So mm. that's all I'm seeing. But um, other features would be the alternate Ring of Power intro sequence and a slightly different rough cut version of the ending. So maybe the versions aren't that different, but it just sounds like for a while this movie was really obscure, really tough to find. But thankfully in the 21st century, it's finally getting the kind of home video widespread release that it deserves. Because I think, I mean, there's a version on YouTube just posted in its entirety, which mm. if I had the rights to the movie, I'd be like, take that fucking shit down and rent it on Amazon. But for whatever reason, they just allow it to kind of live there on YouTube for more people to discover. Yeah, no, uh, I, I hope that some people do. Um, and I'm sure it'll come back into print sometime, maybe in a super deluxe version with all these different, uh, uh, you know, versions included. But uh, I, I know I have a VHS somewhere in my garage of the movie, so that sounds like a mission for me, and I'll report back after I, <laughs> I find a working VCR and view it, and then uh, I, can, I can talk in an informed way about the, uh, the two endings. Very cool. Well, before we wrap up, can you think of any other books or movies or shows that explore these Faustian proverbial deals with the devil that aren't necessarily about music, but just different spins on this traditional narrative that you particularly respond to? Because I, I definitely recommend that if you've, got, if you've got an itch to read classic literature, read Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. I read it on the set of Hannibal back in summer 2000 because we had so much time on the set where we were just killing, wasting time. And I always would keep, like, anytime I could find, like, a small paperback that I could stick in my back pocket, I would keep one of those on the set to, like, read a little bit at a time. So I ended up plowing through Dr. Faustus at the time and loving it. It was fucking amazing. But any other versions of that, that out there that you like? Uh, yeah, I would say it's it's probably a um, a pretty common theme in, uh, in heroic fiction uh, or, you know, heroic movies in general, like elements of, of the Faust story, like the mentor that's not really as good as he seems. I'm sure if you if you just zero in on that idea, um, you'll find lots of I'm sure that yeah, you could say Star Wars like could have some of those elements. Um, but like embrace the dark side. It's the quicker route to what you want. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's almost like it's the inverse uh, story in the in the uh, sort of the, the 1990s Star Wars movies where um, you know uh, Anakin is being trained uh, the right way, but then he ultimately gives into the dark side and and follows another mentor, a bad mentor. Uh, yeah, it still similar. drives me crazy that you have this that classic like arc, but that in execution, it was so dumb. Like it's such a great classic scenario to be explored. And if any other filmmaker had directed it, then perhaps it would have been much stronger, but you got like just dumb scenes with like Anakin, like riding big like beasts and making Padme laugh and scenes where he's, he's like, you are so beautiful. And she's like, that's because I'm so in love. He's like, no, it is I who am in love with you. It's like, it's so awkward and so amateur. It's like, how did y'all allow this to happen with this story that we've all been dreaming of for decades, wanting to see come true? But yeah, I, it's, it, yes, man. He's he had too many yes men around him telling yeah. him, yeah, great idea. Sycophants um, will never will, will never help somebody in their artistic endeavors. No, but but you know, um, now that now that I've had a few seconds to think about it, I mean, rock and roll came out in 1983, so I think it was very much the Canadian answer to uh, a flagging. Uh, repertoire at Disney at the time that was before Little Mermaid it was before they yeah. kind of took off again so uh, rock and roll was sort of a you know a more adult um, version of an animated epic 
but I think oh, it's totally you know, adult. I mean, especially during the club sequence, you're like, whoa, this is kind of kind of yeah. sexy time. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's quite in heavy metal territory, no. but it's it's close. No, there's um, no giant luscious milky boobs flopping back and forth as women lie on their back saying, "You can do with me as you like," and so on and so forth. Yeah, heavy metal right. goes all the way. Yeah, I think I think heavy metal was created in Canada. Also, it was. Uh, yeah, least, I think um, most it, of the se- most of the segments were Canadian in nature. Yeah, uh, uh, but um, but those the the guys who created those stories seem to have purposefully gone for the like the X-rated material because they they wanted to really break away from the the, the kiddie animated movie, um, uh, kind of like Ralph Bakshi did. Uh, but uh, but yeah, uh, rock and roll. Um, yeah, I would say that. Uh, it's, um, you know, actually, now that I think of it, too, um, uh, Mobius, like there's definitely a Mobius influence from the heavy metal comics uh, in, in rock well, for and the roll. vehicles and the buildings, apparently, they directly were inspired by a lot of Mobius drawings. So that, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, but to go back to your your other question. Um, yeah. Another Faustian, a great Faustian story is Little Mermaid. Um, you know, the little mermaid sells her voice. Uh, it's even, it's even vocal. Uh, so it's, it's totally in the, in the realm of what we're talking about today. Um, but yeah, I'm sure you'll find that theme. uh, You can say little examples like Rocky five with like Tommy guns, like, uh, you know, makes a deal with the corrupt guy who's going to help him get to the title faster and things like that. So yeah, it's an immortal scenario where clever storytellers will always find a way to put a fresh new spin on it. But yeah, it's a, it's a question that everybody has to face. If you're in, at all creatively inclined or ambitious in sports, whatever the case may be, like to what degree are you willing to sell your soul to get what you want? To what degree are you willing to compromise your integrity to achieve your goals? And yeah, everybody's got to answer that question for themselves. Exactly. It's different for everybody. But for those of you listening to this show that want to go into the music business or even the film business, I would say really take note of the uh, the metaphors in Phantom of the Paradise and uh, use that to protect yourself and uh, and and uh, go upwards and onwards. <laughs> well, if ever, anybody's got the phone number out there for the devil so that I can make a deal for my YouTube channel, send him my Twitter profile or my contact info because I'm ready to sign up. I, got, I want those million subscribers and I, I'll burn in hell for, for all time to achieve that goal. So uh, <laughs> you can talk to me on the side. But Victor, as always, I love doing these episodes and I love it. You come up, like you and Martin Kessler are like the heavyweight champions are coming up with really unusual off the beaten track bizarre like horror and fantasy and just dystopian topics to explore so anytime you want to come back to talk about anything whether it's like Japanese animation because I started getting because of uh, our Berserk episode I started getting into reading manga again I've been reading the original Akira series I've never tackled Akira on this podcast hint hint so we could tackle like the manga or the movie Ghost in the Shell. We briefly tackled like in the, the first like six months of the episodes of the, I mean, of the podcast, so that didn't even count. But I've been reading that manga as well. So anytime you want to combine manga and animation, I'm in. But also we've talked about doing like Greek mythology and some other things. So yeah. uh, yes to all of the above. That would be great. I would love to come back as soon as possible. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me on this time. Well, as a quick reminder, in case somebody was uh, not paying attention to the beginning, tell people where to find you in social media. Talk about the, your your book and the upcoming audio version, as well as your Kickstarter. Like, everything needs to be promoted and plugged. Now is the time to do so. Uh, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I have a collection of short speculative horror stories out there, kind of uh, like what you'd find in uh, Twilight Zone or Night Gallery uh, called The Sound of Fear. And um, the book is available on Amazon. 
Uh, and um, I'm uh, going to be, well, I'm going to be coming up with a few uh, original new short stories this year as well, um, starting with the, uh, the On Time anthology that we already talked about. Um, but uh, for anybody out there interested in talking about the music business or um, film and TV music or, uh, or any of the stuff we talked about, um, I am at uh, Dime Store Caesar. That is uh, D-I-M-E-S-T-O-R-E-C-A-E-S-A-R on Twitter. That's my main um, plug-in to society. And Bill um, Scurry need to have like a wrestling match for the name of Caesar because he's uh, I think he's something Caesar Productions or something like that. So y'all both have Caesar <laughs> in your Twitter handle. So y'all going to have to have like a, it's come out like when, I, when Power Man uh, fought Luke Cage for the right to use Power Name in the, uh, Power Man in the 70s in Marvel Comics and uh, Power Man lost to Luke Cage and lost the name. I think y'all need to throw down. All right. Anytime, anywhere. Uh, <laughs> or, or if you want to do um, a podcast episode with both of us on there, we can, we can decide it that way. Excellent. Uh, Very cool. But um, yeah, uh, also you can check out my website uh, at uh, vhrodriguez.wordpress.com. Beautiful. Well, dude, I always love these episodes. I look forward to whatever the next one might be. And I just look forward to cut, cutting the sucker together because this one, obviously, I get the chance to play with a lot of music. And the episodes with music are always the most fun to assemble before posting them online. So I'm going to dive right in right now. But we can't thank enough for listening to the episode. Please remember to rate, review the podcast. If you want to find me on Facebook, Twitter, you can always find me at at Colbrax. And if you want some video content, I just posted my season two review of Altered Carbon last night, but you can find my YouTube channel, Geekin' with James Hancock. We hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Definitely hunt down these flicks, but more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.